What does God want from you? I mean, it can be a confusing and frustrating question depending on where you look for the answer, right? I mean, if you look on TV, it seems God wants my, my money. If you look at the flyer that's in your mailbox, God wants your attendance at church. If you look into history, you wonder, maybe does God want me to suffer like those monks in the Middle Ages who used to whip their backs and hit their heads with planks of wood? What does God say that he requires? That's our question this morning, and I believe we find a helpful answer in the book of Micah, chapter 6. Micah, chapter 6, if you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 779. I'm going to pray as we prepare to, to hear from God's word. Lord, this is perhaps the most important question we can ask in life. What do you require from us? Help us, Lord, to to see your answer and to bring our lives in accordance with it. Help us to, to hear you, to see you, and follow you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Again, we're in Micah 6. We don't know much about the prophet Micah, uh, except that he was born in the town of Morsheth, which was located in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he prophesied during the reign of King Hezekiah. The only other place we hear about Micah in the Bible is actually in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah summarizes uh, the teaching of Micah, saying that Micah of Morsheth told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. See, Jeremiah is often called the the weeping prophet. And from this summary, we can clearly see that Micah was not the giggling prophet. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been destroyed, and the southern kingdom of Judah was under the impression that they were safe. They've kept up with the sacrifices and worship services, so Micah, why would you say we are going to be judged? What more does God want from them? What does God expect? Now, when you and I don't understand something, sometimes it's helpful to have it explained another way, right? An accountant's graphs can help us see the issues in our finances. A storyteller or a photographer can inspire compassion through their work. Sometimes when our friends don't understand us, we even joke around, right? We say, should I draw you a picture? In Micah 6, that's what God is saying to Israel. Israel, should I draw you a picture? Let me make you a graph. Here's a story you might understand. Let's imagine for a moment we were in a court. All rise for the honorable judge, the great I am, Yahweh, the Lord, is now presiding. Look with me at verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. 
For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. You see, this is a a picture of a court of law. The Lord has an indictment, a formal charge to bring against Israel, and the mountains can verify the validity of his claims. They serve as jury and witness. They saw firsthand God's dealings with the nation of Israel. Follow with me at verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. You see, the people of Judah have submitted a, a claim of undue burden. They claim that the Lord expects too much of them. They've paid their debt. In response, the Lord provides evidence to the opposite. Verse 4. For I brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Exhibit A. I saved you from servitude, from being beaten and taken advantage of. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. That's exhibit B. I gave you men and women to to lead you in the right ways to go. I didn't just free you and tell you to figure it out by yourself. Verse 5, O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised? And what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him? Exhibit C, I protected you from your enemies. You see, Moab's king hired the prophet Balaam to curse Israel, but God miraculously changed the curses in his mouth to become blessings. And then look down, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Exhibit D, I gave you a land to inhabit as your own. You see, what happened from Shittim to Gilgal was the crossing of the Jordan. It was the beginning of Israel's time dwelling in the land. From A to D, Egypt to Gilgal is the beginning and end of Israel's formation. Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and the other mountains all saw it. How God was faithful to the Israelites. And so God asks in the face of this evidence, how do you plead? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Now, the correct answer would have been, God, you've done nothing but bless us. You are righteous. We are unworthy. But that would be admitting their guilt. And so instead, they, they ask their own question. Verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? He's saying, we don't get it, Micah. We're following the religion. We've got good attendance records at worship services. Our monthly tithing report shows that we're given to the temple the the right amount. Is this not good? Well, yes, it is good, God would have responded. Then what's going to get him off our backs? Verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? This is what King Solomon sacrificed to God at the dedication of the temple. Thousands of rams. Yes, God, God would be pleased with that. With ten thousands of rivers of oil? Solomon also offered thousands of gallons of oil. But the people want to make their plead, their plea absurd. They don't say gallons. They say that God must want thousands of rivers. They continue. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do to be saved, God? Child sacrifice? Now they know God wouldn't want this. 
But nevertheless, they want a checklist faith. Like a student in a pass-fail class, they want a clear syllabus that tells them just how much they have to do to avoid getting an F. What do we have to do to satisfy you, God? What do you expect of us? What do you require? And then Micah responds in verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Three things God expected from, from Israel, the people he delivered from Egypt. Justice, kindness, humility. Interestingly, many scholars look at this text and say that it doesn't seem that it's directed only to the old covenant people of Israel. Rather, it's God's requirement of of all people. I mean, notice the text doesn't say, he has told you, O Israel, what is good for you. Rather, the text says, he has told you, O man, what is good. Just as many call Matthew 28, 18, the Great Commission, this text is often called the Great Commission requirement. What does God require of us, church, those he's delivered from slavery to sin? Here are God's three requirements. Justice, kindness, humility. But what do each of those mean? Let's unpack them for a bit, would you? To do justice. Now, now hear me. I know that some of you are afraid of that word, because our world has co-opted it. They have tied the word justice to numerous causes that as followers of Jesus, we, we can't support. Secular justice can at times look like gross injustice. There are probably few cases of this more clear than injustice for the unborn. But just because someone, sometimes the world's form of justice is warped, doesn't mean that we should throw away the word justice. I mean, justice is incredibly biblical. I mean, in Genesis 18, 19, God says that the reason that he chose Abraham was that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. In Deuteronomy 16, 20, God tells Israel, justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land the Lord your God is giving you. Psalm 106 said, blessed are those who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. The prophet Isaiah, in the beginning of his book, rebukes the nation of Israel, saying that the reason they're going to be overthrown is because they haven't learned to do good, to seek justice, to correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Amos 5, 24 says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is just a, a small sampling of the 421 times the word justice, mishpat, is used throughout the Old Testament alone. And Jesus, I believe even referencing this passage, speaks to the Pharisees in, in Matthew 23, 23, saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. Listen, our God 
is a God of justice. And so he expects justice from his image bearers. That's what he's saying in Micah 6. I've been so incredibly just toward you. And so I expect for you to reflect that justice to others. You know my righteous acts. Reflect them. Do as I do. You see, earlier in Micah, we we see that the people understood orthodoxy, but not orthopraxy. They were following God's guidance on liturgy, but not his guidance on life. We might say that they would go to church, but they wouldn't be the church. They took advantage of those on the margins or turned a blind eye to the suffering of the oppressed. And God's response, as it often is throughout the Old Testament, was, listen, if you refuse justice, I'll give you justice. If you refuse to minister at the margins, I'll bring you to the margins. If you refuse to do justice for the refugee, I'll have you live as a refugee. So what is the justice they should have done? I think throughout Scripture, we see that that justice is advocacy, generosity, and action. Listen, justice is, is advocacy as we plead the widow's cause. Justice is generosity as we care for the orphan and the refugee. Justice is action as we respond to Isaiah 58, 6, which asks, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every chain? You see, the the early church was famous for all three of these. Advocacy for racial and gender equality, generosity and provision for the poor, and action in rescuing babies from infanticide and women from pagan temple prostitution. You see, many scholars point out that the early church grew at an astonishing rate in part because of how the people of God reflected the beautiful heart of God in justice through these actions. And people just couldn't resist the beauty. Friends, I think part of the reason our our world craves justice is because as his people, we have not always been faithful in reflecting God's justice. They're hungry for something. Something to to fill the space that common grace left on their hearts. But they they end up trying to, to shove a square peg in a round hole. I don't know how experimental you like to get in your cooking, but I grew up with a, a truly amazing cook who loved experiments. I'll never forget the day that my mom decided that she wanted to make her very own Jamaican patties from scratch. We loved Jamaican patties growing up. That day, uh, she she made the patties, and I thought they were pretty good. But she didn't think so. She didn't want to use a recipe book. She wanted it to be her recipe, and so she tried again the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And we ate Jamaican patties for three weeks straight for dinner. That's what our world is doing. They know there's got to be a way to do justice, but they just don't have the recipe. They don't have a close-up of the heart of God 
But church, we do. The gospel gives us the correctly shaped peg for the whole. Listen, sometimes it's God's people who who recognize the whole. This is a big part of our history here at the Moody Church. From the seats of this sanctuary came voices of advocacy, hands of generosity, and feet of action. As we started Karis Crisis Pregnancy Center to care for women facing unplanned pregnancies. As we launched By the Hand Club for Kids to bring educational support to children in Chicago who live in under-resourced neighborhoods. Through Naomi's house, which works with women who have been victims of of human trafficking. Even this church, (laughs) this church was started because of injustice when a shoe salesman named Dwight Moody saw that poor children from a neighborhood in our city called Little Hell were unwelcome in Chicago's churches. And he sought to correct that injustice by starting a Sunday school. Whereas the plaque on our front door still reads, Ever welcome to this house of God are the strangers and the poor. You see, sometimes the the Holy Spirit allows us to, to see first the ignored and forgotten potholes of injustice that have damaged the vulnerable and wrecked society. But other times, our world sees and names injustice first. And we got to be careful and not forget the, the doctrine of common grace. We, we can sometimes throw our hands up and say, well, if the world says it, it must be wrong. The evangelical apologist Francis Schaeffer regularly wrestled with this question. He, he asked, how do we join the world in acts of justice without aligning ourselves with them? Schaeffer knew that alliances could be dangerous. He warned that we should not wrap Christianity in our national flag. Listen, at times, political parties might help us move forward in achieving justice. But as Christians, we are exiles in Babylon, and we can't make alliances with Babylonian political parties. However, we can be what Schaefer called co-belligerents. We can fight injustice side by side without sharing a foundation. Listen, we we may not agree with their statement of faith or their lack of one. We may not agree with every side issue that they hold to. But being a co-belligerent is actually a, a biblical concept. For example, this is what the African nation of Cush was often to Israel. They were co belligerents of would be oppressors. Cushites are said to have occasionally joined the Israelite army to protect against growing, threatening powers. And the nation of Cush is even blessed for this in the book of Isaiah. They're not allies. Israel does not adopt their religious practices or customs like they did when they built alliances with Egypt. No. They're simply co-belligerents. We do this here at Moody Church. At Naomi's house, we partner with the sheriff's office. By the hand, partners with local politicians. Our disability ministries partner with various Chicago group homes. We don't need to align with everything that a person or group says or does, but we can ask, where do they see injustice? Where do they feel the world's brokenness? And we can ask, and we should ask, where do I see my world broken. Do justice. Do as 
he does. Secondly, we're told to love kindness. Now, here's another word that can be easily misunderstood. I want to be honest with you. Uh, when, I, when I was doing research for this sermon, I was frustrated uh, by our translations here at, at Moody Church. Uh, here we, we use a translation called the ESV, English Standard Version, and the, the translation says kindness. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to get you to doubt your translations. The reality is the, the Hebrew word is a word that we simply don't have a direct translation for in English. It's the word Chesed. Some of you have probably heard it translated steadfast love. It's, it's this chesed that is said to be with Joseph as he's put in prison by Potiphar in Egypt. It's God's chesed that is said to have led people from Egypt. And when God reveals himself to Moses in the cleft of the rock, he repeats this word twice to describe himself. Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed and faithfulness, keeping chesed for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Kindness just doesn't seem to cut it. I mean, it's good to be kind, to be nice. But is that what we'd say God was to us? Nice? Are we called to niceness? So I looked a little bit more into the English word to see if I maybe missed something, and turns out, I really did. You see, nice and kind aren't synonyms at all, to my surprise. Nice comes from a Latin word that actually means ignorant. And eventually, in English, came to mean mildly agreeable. Whereas the etymology of kind is radically different in that it comes from the word kin. To be kind, then, is to treat someone like they are family. Keep your ESV Bibles. Again, just as there is a worldly justice, there is a worldly kindness that sees kindness as niceness, and agreeability. But biblical kindness is so much more. Kindness is the good Samaritan who came to the aid of the man who was robbed, beaten, and left by the side of the road. The religious leaders pass the man by, but the Samaritan is the one who treats him as kin, kindly, bandaging his wounds, inconveniencing himself for the man's comfort, paying for his care. Kindness is also seen in the story of the bad Samaritan who Jesus meets at the well. He could have treated her as his enemy, as most Jews and Samaritans treated each other. He could have treated her as a sinner to avoid, as many of her fellow citizens did because of her history. Five husbands, now a live-in boyfriend. But instead, Jesus treats her kindly, speaking to her as kin, asking for water, confronting her sin, and then commissioning her as the first missionary to Samaria. Kindness isn't always nice. Sometimes loving a family member requires gentleness. Sometimes toughness. 
I think the, the best translation of chesed that I, I've found comes from the late Eugene Peterson's translation of Micah 6.8, where he says, be compassionate and loyal in your love. Like the ESV says, kindness. The NIV says, mercy. The CSB says, faithfulness. All of it. It's compassionate loyalty. And God is abounding in it. You see, when when God rehearses his deliverance of Israel in in Micah 6, 3 to 5, the verses we looked at before, we don't have to think too hard to remember God's compassionate loyalty, his chesed. You see, the, the Israelites gave up on God over and over again. They were repeatedly faithless and fickle, but God never gave up on them. He was compassionately loyal. They cried that God trapped them to die at the Red Sea by the Egyptian army, but but God showed his chesed and delivered them through the parted waters. They complained that they would starve to death, but God showed his chesed and rained down bread from heaven. They complained that bread was boring. They wanted meat, and, and God, with his chesed, sent quail. They were impatient with Moses and built a golden calf to worship, and God could have destroyed them and started all over But instead, he showed his chesed repeatedly from the deliverance of Egypt to their establishment in the land of Israel. God showed his chesed to his people, and he's shown his chesed to us as well. You see, just as mishpat is the action that's required from God, justice, chesed is the attitude required by God. In justice, God says, do as I do. In kindness, he says, feel as I feel. Justice asks, where is the world broken? Kindness asks, is our heart broken for the world? Is your heart broken over the brokenness? Let me frame it another way. Justice was... God's wrath poured out on the cross. Kindness was Jesus' willingness to go to the cross for us. I think most people would agree that our culture is not one that is characterized by kindness. Nah. We're too outraged to be kind. We're outraged by our politicians, outraged at companies and schools, outraged about tweets, retweets, TikToks, Instagram, and Facebook posts, text messages, and sound bites, and everything else. Whether you lean left or lean right, you're outraged. And outrage typically calls and leads to a demand for justice without kindness. It leads to calls to block, boycott, and cancel the requirement of God is different. His call is to mercy, to love kindness, to extend compassion, to give the benefit of the doubt, to reject the insatiable desire to see a person be put in their place, to be willing to to have your thoughts reflected in the YouTube or Facebook comments. If you can't say amen, say ouch. Loving chesed requires that I reflect the chesed that was shown to me. Justice without kindness is truly what we deserve. 
But in Jesus, chesed kindness is what we received. See, the people of Judah threw up their arms in exasperation. What do you want from us, God? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Do you want my child? And God's response was no. I'll give you mine instead. You see, the fruit of your body can't pay for the sin of your soul. But I can. I can be pierced for your transgression. I can be crushed for your iniquity. I can give my only begotten son so that if you believe on him, you might find salvation in my justice and kindness and have eternal life. Do justice. Where do you see your world broken? Love kindness. How is your heart breaking for the world? How is my heart breaking for my neighbor, the stranger, the friend? When you, when you see their brokenness, do you ask how you can help? If you ask how you can help, do you stop when they say they're okay, but you can see clearly that they're overwhelmed? Or do you treat them as kin and bring the meal anyway? Pay their rent. Sit with them and listen. Insist on treating them as family, as God has treated you. Perhaps loving kindness is another way of God saying, be holy as I am holy. Do as I do. Feel as I feel. But how do we know how he does and feels? That's the secret of the third requirement. Humility. But not just humility. Our text says, walk humbly with your God. This, I think, is the key to how true justice and kindness work. You see, whereas justice and kindness are essentially about our horizontal relationships, they find their power in a humility that originates in a vertical relationship. Humility before our God. I say this is key because there are so many who would say that the gospel is simply justice and mercy. But justice and mercy without a humble walk with God is truly just another form of checklist religion that the people of Judah offered and God rejected. It's not the gospel because it's not good news at all. You can never be just or merciful enough to earn his grace. And so we must walk humbly with our God. It's interesting that this phrase, walk with God, is actually only used in in two other places in the Old Testament. It's used to describe Noah and Enoch, two people who actually lived before the covenants with Abraham and Moses, before the sacrificial system or the temple with its liturgies. Enoch and Noah had no religious checklist, and yet they're said to have walked with God. What did they do? They saw themselves for who they were and God for who he is. And because of that, they had an intimate relationship with him. This is what God is inviting us into when he says, walk with him. He's inviting us into an intimate relationship like Noah and Enoch had, to do as he does, to feel as he feels, and to see him as he is so that we might see ourselves as we truly are, broken, sinful, needy. You see, true humility is only possible through a humble, intimate walk with God. Otherwise, it just becomes self-righteousness, 
false humility, which all of us despise, right? I mean, I can't help but think of Mr. Darcy in Jane, and Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, who says, nothing is more deceitful than the appearance of humility. It is often only carelessness of opinion and sometimes an indirect boast. Like We've all seen this, right? The politician who makes the obligatory speech about how humbled they are to have been elected. Or the awful humble brag. We see these all online all the time. I see it for my students. Wow, this semester was such a struggle. I almost lost my 4.0 average. Very humble. Or, I can't believe how hard it is to learn Chinese. I didn't have this trouble when I learned Japanese, Spanish, or Arabic. (laughs) We know these aren't examples of humility because there's nothing humiliating in it. That's what's at the root of the word in the original language here. It it means to humiliate. In Flannery O'Connor's short story, Revelation, a character named Mrs. Turpin is said to always notice people's feet. This is a creative way of saying that she looked down on everybody. Mrs. Turpin was, was blind to her pride and yet believed herself to be incredibly humble. As she sits in a crowded doctor's office, she passes judgment on everyone and everything. At one point, she proudly tells one woman sitting next to her that she and her husband are pig farmers. She says, however, our hogs are not dirty and they don't stink. This is probably the greatest exposure of pride, thinking our pigs don't stink. Mrs. Turpin frames that pride in words of religious humility, at one point saying, when I think who all I could have been besides myself, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you. It's at this point in the story that we read the words, the book struck her directly over her left eye. This is something Flannery O'Connor loves to do in her short stories, sudden and disorienting acts of violence never without purpose, always to make a way to grace. A young woman threw a book at her, yelled at her, and called her an old warthog. Mrs. Turpin was deeply disturbed by the incident and later reflected on it as she stared over her hogs on her farm. You see, when she was in the the doctor's office, a gospel hymn was playing with the key lyrics and the title being, When I Looked Up, And he looked down. Mrs. Turpin knew the song and even sang along in the story, but it wasn't until she suffered humiliation that she understood it. Pride looks down, and no one can see God except by looking up. Eugene Peterson explained it this way, We're dust, dust that the Lord used to make a human being. If we cultivate a lively sense of our origin and nurture a sense of continuity with it, who knows, we may also acquire humility. To be humble means to acknowledge we come from dust. To have a right understanding of who God is and a right understanding of who we are. We are dust that has been given life by a just and kind God. We have no reason to think ourselves more deserving or higher quality than anyone else. To quote Karen Swallow Pryor, pride is always a way of not seeing oneself properly, whereas humility is self-knowledge perfected. Do you see yourself for who you are 
in God for who he is? Do you see yourself as one who who knows best, who sees most clearly, who's got it all figured out? Or do you see yourself in desperate need of God, his enlightenment, his leading, his healing for our broken, unjust, unkind, prideful hearts? You see, many have sought to, to do justice. Many have sought to be merciful. But in their prideful, do-it-yourself ignorance, have, bought a bra- have brought about even greater injustice and cruelty because they did as they thought best. Listen, you might think that you have the answer to the world's brokenness, but walking humbly with your God will cause you to ask, what would my God have me do? Here's the answer. He'd have you look to Jesus. If we're walking with him, we see that we were blind to our own brokenness until God made us see Looking to Jesus gives us the humility to see that maybe the political other might have something right. The older person might have needed wisdom. The younger person might have a helpful perspective. And those at the margins might see the problems of the margins with greater clarity. Walking humbly with Jesus makes us pause before deciding what to do or how to vote. We listen. We learn, and before we act, we ask, what would my God have me do? If we walk alone in justice and mercy, all we're offering the world is ourselves as its Savior. As Micah 6, 7 says, our bodies for their souls. And it's simply not good enough. Walking humbly with our God rejects the Savior complex and sees that only one firstborn was good enough to pay for our transgressions. Only one body was worthy to pay for the sins of our souls, and it's Jesus. It's only Jesus. Humble, lowly, earthly Jesus. Want to do justice and mercy? Humbly trusting in Jesus as our sacrifice is the only way that we can truly walk with God. It's the only way we can see how to do true justice and love true kindness. In Jesus' gospel, we are justified so that we might be just, and in the gospel, we are welcomed as God's kin so that we might be kind. So what does God require of you? He requires all of you because just as Jesus gave all of himself, he wants all of us. He requires not just your liturgy, but your life. Not just your works, but your heart. Not just your intentions, but your pride. And so we ask, where do I see my world broken? How is my heart breaking for the world? And what would my God have me do? What does the Lord require? Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. Would you pray with me? Lord, let this be so. Cause us to do as you do, to feel as you feel, and to see you as you are. Break our hearts for what breaks yours and move us into true justice and kindness.
we pray in Jesus' name.